Hello, and welcome to the Dialogue on Dialogue podcast. I am your host, Philip Recheck. In this podcast, I am seeking to share some of the interesting thoughts and ideas of people in my own locale. And in the grandiose style of grandiose introductions, I hope to make the world a better place, one conversation at a time. Hello, and thank you for joining Dialogue on Dialogue podcast. Today, I am here with Peter Hart Frinson, a good friend as well as a teammate on my Ultimate Frisbee team. Ugh. Peter, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Phil. Yeah. So this is fun. We've been wanting to do this for a while, and you had a, a Gay Marriage Generation book that came out back in September? October. October. So it's been out for a little bit, so we'll get to that. But before we get started on that, what I wanted to ask you about is, Peter, when you were a child, what were the things that you enjoyed doing? What did you like to play with? What games did you like to play? What are your fond play-related memories as a child? Well, lately I've been reminiscing with people about um, the good old days. <laughs> you know, because now I'm old enough mm-hmm. that um, everything that young people do is wrong right. because everything that I did when I was young was better. <laughs> and, uh, uh, seriously, um, I've been talking with some people about about just unstructured play. Uh, you know, when your parents would, would um, kick you out of the house and mm-hmm. say, we don't want to see you again until dinner time. Right. And um, I grew up in, a, um, in Memphis, Tennessee, in an old post-World War II suburb. Yeah. Where all the, you know, the houses are all like prefab cookie cutter type. You know, the only difference is whether the porch faces east or west, right. you know. Right. Somebody get a little... A little uh, crazy, put a tree in the front yard or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And of course, now it's in the middle of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were tons of kids around, and uh, we would just run around outside and play basketball, pick up football, baseball. Mm-hmm. You'd make up war games. Nice. Um, you know, there was an infinite variety of things to do. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, I did the, you know, I was part of the video game generation, yep. you yeah. know, so I, so I played my fair share. And yeah. stuff like that, but um, it was a it was the kind of childhood that you could romanticize about, and and probably in the future many more books will be written about you know the great era of American childhood when kids roamed free right. and were ushered from one extracurricular activity to the next by their parents. And you knew it was time to come home when you heard somebody's mom yelling out the back door, like that was that, or it got so dark you couldn't see anymore. Was it? That was the time that play, play ended for the day. That's pretty much it. And all the parents were, uh, you know, a, a network of, of watchers, you know. So even though we were out there on our own, there were always eyes on the street, um, for better or worse. Uh, and, um, you know, living in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, it's so safe here. The neighborhood I grew up in would probably scare a lot of people uh, in a place like this. And certainly uh, would be dubbed the scary neighborhood in a town like this. But it was absolutely safe, and it was absolutely a, a, a fun place to, to be and to run around. We had to worry about stray dogs. We had to worry about burglars. We had to worry about, yeah. you know, all sorts of things. Right, and, and my memory of those situations, too, is you knew the creepy people in the neighborhood. And our, and our mental geography of our neighborhood between um, the houses where our friends lived 
and the houses where sympathetic others lived. You know, so they might be friendly neighborhood people, uh, you know, grandparents whose kids were out of the house, or people who didn't have kids but were friendly. And then there were the houses where you never saw anyone, um, you never heard from anyone, and you just generally avoided those yards because you had nothing to do with them. Um, and I could, you know, in my head now, I can still go down the block and I can tell you that was a house where it was in that category and that was a house in that category and that was right. a house in that category. And, um, you know, it was a very child-centric view of the world yeah. where things mattered to you only on the basis of the extent to which it factored into your play or right. not. Right. And I remember, too, as a child, there was no arranging for play dates. There was no... Parents calling parents, seeing if you wanted to set these play situations up. It was, like you said, child-driven. And kids would just show up at the back door being like, can Peter come out and play? Or can Bill mm -hmm. come out and play? Yeah. And again, with that same situation, it was you could go to a house four houses down where there was uh, opposite-sex girl three years younger than you. But if you had a reason to go play with that child, everybody was like, cool. Fine. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? <laughs> Uh, Richfield, uh, Minnesota. So it's a okay. suburb of Minneapolis. It's, and it was your typical working class, same, very similar, I think, upbringing. It was you know, cookie cutter type homes, but everybody within the neighborhood uh, was. And I went to a uh, Catholic elementary school growing up. So I wasn't even exposed from a, in the summer. I didn't know a lot of the kids because I didn't go to school with some of them. Uh, that are in my neighborhood, but at the same time, during the summer, all of a sudden, everybody's best friends, or everybody knew everybody, because it didn't matter at that point what yeah. school you went to. Yeah. And I think this is a really interesting topic, because I, this gets brought up a lot, this kind of free-range kid uh, mm -hmm. type of childhood. And, and what do you think, uh, we'll get more into your background, but... <clears throat> What do you think as a sociologist is the biggest contributor to this? To, I, my kids weren't raised that way. Right. And I don't see it unless they, parents are always involved in the situation now. Yeah. Uh, but what do you think is one of the driving, one of the driving factors to the changes? There's two points I'll make about this sociologically. One is that there are two very different child-rearing strategies that are associated with different socioeconomic classes. Um, Annette LaRoe is the sociologist who, who first called our attention to this difference. And she showed that there are major educational and economic outcomes that are associated with uh, each child-rearing strategy. So, Working class parents use a child-rearing strategy that's, that we've been describing. Yeah. That is the accomplishment of natural growth. And the idea is that, you know, um, you provide a safe home for your kids, and that's pretty much all you need to do. Right. The kids will figure everything else out on their own. They'll go out and they'll roam the neighborhood and they'll play, and they're gonna, they'll get into fist fights uh, when their pickup basketball game goes awry, right. but they'll solve their own problems. Right. Uh, and when they go to school, that's the teacher's job. They're the experts over there, and the parent doesn't really intervene. Right. So working class parents uh, adopt a 
fairly hands-off approach to child rearing. Middle-class parents, and for the most part, this works out to parents who have a college education right. uh, or in white-collar jobs of various kinds. They pursue a strategy called concerted cultivation. And here the idea is that the parent is very active in molding and shaping the lives of the child. So here we have structured play activities right. rather than unstructured play activities. Scheduled activities. You go to violin lessons right. and soccer practice right. and, and all of these other things. And those are all things that are set up for you know, adults. Right. Uh, you know, for adults, by adults. Yep. And the parents are really involved in the children's schools and everything like that, um, such that the parents are, you know, really advocating their children yeah. via, you know, basically the teacher and the principal. Nowadays, we call this helicopter parent, sure. right? Or lawnmower parent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, college admissions committees and employers like uh, the characteristics of children who have been raised with a concerned approach. Okay. Even though kind of makes it sound like you're raising a group of spoiled brats. Those children are also developing the skills to figure out how to navigate hierarchies, how to advocate for themselves. And they learn that, for example, rules are there, but they can be bent. Right. Whereas right. those working class kids oftentimes don't learn that same lesson. And so middle class kids who are reared with the concerted cultivation strategy by their parents often can go up to a college professor and develop a relationship sure. with them and get an extension on that paper deadline. Right. Whereas the working class child wouldn't necessarily have that background and know how to talk to a professor and advocate for themselves and gain that extra extension. Right. So the working class kid gets a lower grade on the paper. The middle class kid gets a better grade on the paper just by virtue of the kind of cultural capital right. that the middle class kid. So I think one of the things that's driving this move towards very structured, engaged parenting is that there are real material and economic <laughs> advantages that are associated with it. Yeah. And it's of course, it's not that the children are better. You know, it, right. like I said, if anything, they kind of, you know, resemble spoiled brats as right. much as anything else. Right. But they know how to speak the language of, of, the, of, the, of adults, yeah. the people who have the power to give them jobs. Right. Of, the, of the professors who give them their grades. Right. And so they're able to translate that into better outcomes. Were these were these parenting styles are these parenting styles new? Or or I mean are have they like were the were the more well to do parents back when we were growing up using that more concerted parenting style as opposed to the free range uh, approach? That's a good question, and I don't know the answer to that. Okay. My guess would be that the answer is no. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, parenting philosophy right. evolves right. every 20 years or so. And, you know, of course, now all the parenting expert books basically say that everything your parents did to you was horrible and yeah. terrible, yeah, and you exactly. should be doing something different, right? Yeah. You know, so there are these trends. And sell the books. Well, obviously. <laughs> um, so, my, so my guess is that things probably changed okay. over time. But certainly in the United States, in this day and age, that's true. You know, that, that teachers uh, and employers are set, are taught to reward middle class cultural competence. Right. And 
in general, it's not that they're taught to punish working class kids at right. all. Right. But they're they're not taught to value the characteristics of kids from the working class. Mm. Um, and so, you know, as a college professor myself, I have to watch myself with respect to my students because if I know or can guess, you know, which of my students are coming from different kinds of backgrounds, I can interpret their behavior differently because two identical problems between a middle-class child and a, and a working-class child are going to manifest themselves in totally different ways. Uh, and so I know that, you know, just to be fair, mm-hmm. you know, for the sake of social justice, I right. have to uh, be able to read people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Right. Now, the other thing I'll say about this has to do with nostalgia on our part. Sure. Um, and this is a, you know, could be a segue to the book, although it certainly doesn't have to be. But I spend a lot of time thinking about the differences between generations mm-hmm. and what generational change means and all of that. Uh, and it is almost a truism that every generation, once they hit middle age, you right. know, like I am now. It's kid nowadays. Exactly. You can see haircuts and they're rock and roll. We romanticize yeah. how great things were when I was young. Right. Um, and we look down on uh, kids today. Sure. And generally, not only am I wrong about my own childhood, you know, things weren't as great as I remember them. Right. But also, my view of children today is driven by media stereotypes as much as anything else. Because I don't raise my children to be like the stereotype. You don't raise your right. children like the stereotype, and yet we somehow believe that this stereotypical child is taking over the world right. and they're going to be the ruin of society. Right. And so there's a significant component of, of, uh, of just inaccurate perception right. on our part what about what... Yeah. And so we don't actually accurately perceive the differences between our childhood and right. contemporary childhood. So... Um, so that's the other thing I'll say. Yeah. In truth, we don't have this like stark divide between right. the generations. It's not like the child rearing philosophies and strategies have changed that much. Mm-hmm. It's the same stuff over and over again, you know, recycled right. with a different label and maybe a different mix. Right. Um, so, you know, when we talk about our childhoods, I think we have more in common with children today than most people would. Right. Nowadays, people think, oh, these kids are, you know, have these iPads and right. iPods and phones and tablets right. and touchscreens, right. and it's ruining their brains. Right. Well, come on. Yeah. We ruined our brains by yeah. watching the Saturday morning cartoons right. and right. everything else. I, I went home, every, yeah, went home, watched Brady Bunch. We just, their, their stuff is just a lot more interesting now that they're engaged in Because our stuff was pretty mediocre when, when you look back in hindsight. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's jump forward a little bit. Go to Memphis, uh, and then did you grow up like through high school in Memphis? Yeah, I, I stayed in the same house all eighteen years of my of my childhood. Okay, and I went to college in at the New College of Florida. Okay, which is in Sarasota. Uh, it was a wonderful place. It was a place where um, I think I really blossomed as a person. Sure, I found the high school environment to be totally stifling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to go to a, a school where you could really learn. Now, 
did you, I guess a couple things. How did you pick New College in Florida? The appeal, do you remember? I've got one signing up looking on the college, looking at colleges right now. So what was it back then that drew you three, four states over, depending on which way you went? I was a teenage radical. Okay. I was a teenage rebel who only selectively rebelled. Yeah. You know, so I played in some punk rock bands. Okay. And hung out with a bunch of anarchists. And then I got straight A's in high school, too. Yeah. So I was very selective. Quietly got straight A's in high school <laughs> so that no one else knew. That's, that's right. And anyway, uh, I, I was talking to a friend of a friend. This was a, a friend. My friend was older and was out of college. I was only about 16 at the time. And, and my friend had a friend who was visiting. Okay. So I was talking to him, you know, on the couch one day at, at my friend's house, and he was asking me, you know, so, you know, are you thinking about going to college and all? And so I said, you know, yeah, but I hate school. I hate the discipline. I hate the, you know, the grading. I want to I want to go to a place where I can just learn and be free to, to right. learn. I had a very romanticized, yeah. you know, idealistic view yeah. of education and what education could be. Right. And I wanted that. Uh, it turns out both my friend and my friend's friend had gone to uh, colleges and, and graduate programs that yeah. were like that. And so he gave me a whole list of colleges oh. in the U.S. that fit that model. And this was very early days of the Internet. I didn't have any email. Um, you know, so one day I went to the public library and, you know, checked out the books that yeah. listed all the colleges. Right. And I wrote inquiries. And they sent me their promotional materials, yep. and um, and New College of Florida was the one that stuck out to okay. me. In part because it's a public school, mm -hmm. um, so it was very affordable, um, and really affordable if you live in Florida, which yeah. I didn't. But in, in any case, but it was a public school which I liked, mm -hmm. uh, and it and it offered a really large amount of freedom to the student to, okay. to make your own education. So we had no grades. There was no core curriculum, uh -huh. uh, and every student had to write a senior thesis before they graduated. Okay. And my experience of, of going through college, finding that love of learning right. for learning's sake, right. and doing that undergraduate research project was the thing that made me go, I want to go to grad school. I think I could do, I think yeah. I would like to do this for the rest of my life. That's cool. Uh, and was it assumed by your parents that you would go, like, did you come from a family where, no, you're going to go to college? Or was it like, oh. Peters wants to go to college. Like, what was the mindset um, in your family when you said, Mom, Dad, going to be Joe College? What was the... It was very much expected different in that I took an untraditional path to college. Mm -hmm. uh, my best friend growing up uh, was, you know, similarly, uh, uh, you know, rebellious to me. And he figured out a way to game the system. Uh, in Memphis Public Schools, Time. I don't know if this is still true, but at the time, you needed 20 classes to graduate with a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. um, and for the most part, kids are taking six classes a year. Well, six times four is 24. Right. That's four extra classes. Right. Uh, and if you satisfactorily pass all your classes uh, in a given year and with a certain grade point average, you're allowed to take summer school classes ahead of time. Okay. Uh, and so 
what my friend figured out was that um, after his junior year, mm-hmm. he had a high enough grade point average. He had 18 of his 20 credits right. done, and he could take his last two classes in summer school and skip his senior year. And that's what he did. Okay. He was a year older than me, and I thought to myself, well, that's brilliant. Yeah. I'm going to do this too. So I graduated, you know, nine months early or whatever it was, and, and bummed around Memphis for a year. I, I was a mechanic in a bike shop and, and nice. uh, was involved in various other uh, you know, activist projects and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I took that year off between high school and college. Uh, so when I started college, it was not the typical, I'm a jaded senior right. getting ready to start right. back in with four more years of school. Yeah. I had had that year off to work and to it's yeah. a distance. Yeah, you understood what it meant to work a 40-hour work week. You understood That's right. you know, some self-discipline. You have to get up, take care of yourself, some freedom. So, yeah. Yeah. And to this day, I think that our world would be better. Yeah. I think college would be better for our college students if every student took a year off yeah. between high school and college. Yeah. And you don't even have to do anything fancy in your gap year either. You know, for me... Um, working a, a you know, not quite minimum wage, but almost minimum wage yeah. hourly job, yeah. and then bumming around town for nine months gave me a taste of freedom. Right. It gave me a taste of responsibility. I still lived at home with my parents, but, yeah. but I got to kind of set my own schedule and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and like you said, it gives you perspective. Right. So I, I, I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh, and I also... Also, feel that technical colleges, in some way, offer not necessarily a gap year, but for the kids who transfer out of technical colleges to more uh, formal degrees, that have at least a better awareness of the world around them. Yeah, it's less, very yeah. less entitled. Yeah, it's very true that I can see a difference in the maturity level mm-hmm. between my students who come from a community college mm-hmm. and transfer into UW Eau Claire compared to the average student who comes straight out of high school. You know, there is a there is a different understanding, there's a different maturity, there's a different awareness about what the stakes are. Right. Uh, that a lot of students who are straight out of high school, they just don't have. Right. And of course that doesn't make them worse students necessarily. Right. Um, but they comport themselves differently. Yeah. So you go, you finish at new uh, college in Florida, mm-hmm. and then Apply to grad school. Where did you go to grad school? University of Wisconsin at Madison. Oh, I was there too. Wonderful school. It is a um, So wait, when were you in Madison? 2002 to 2005. Okay. Okay. And uh, what drew you to Madison specifically in terms of graduate program? Wisconsin's sociology department uh, has consistently been one of the top rated departments. Uh, and it's a huge department in terms of the number of faculty they have and the kinds of things that you can do there. Uh, and so it was an obvious choice uh, as, as a place to apply. As it turns out, it was the only place I got into. Okay. All the other places I applied to uh, uh, rejected me, which... Graduate schools are so competitive. It, it, at yes. that point, it's not even a reflection on the student. It's a reflection on the fit. Exactly. Uh, the student. Exactly. And so um, it was just, it kind of fell into my lap. And it turned out to be a really good decision. Um, Or or a good, not decision, good non-decision. Right, right. (laughs) Good default. A good good default. I got lucky. Uh, And while you were there, 
Did you were you with the same advisor for those that entire time? Did you? Okay, I was. Yeah. And what was what was your advisor's research bent? Like, what were you walking into from a lab standpoint that uh, that advisor was well known for? Who was your advisor? Yeah, I actually was weird because I had two advisors. Okay. Uh, so they had a co-advisor relationship okay. um, with me and with, with each other. Um, my main advisor in sociology uh, was Pamela Hall, okay. who does study social movement. Mm -hmm. um, and she uh, made her name initially um, by studying the logic of collective action, uh, of how do multiple individuals um, you know, set aside or harness their self-interest to do something that is for the collective good. Right. It's a, sort of a famous problem in the, in the social sciences. Why do people do yeah. things that look apparently irrational from the outside? Why would you do something risky, like participate in a protest or get arrested uh, for a cause that you believe in, knowing that your one contribution is probably pretty meaningless in the overall sense of this. The movement right. is not going to win or lose because of your one action. So why would you bring that risk upon yourself? Uh, so she made her name initially by working through that problem with respect to social movements. And it's a really varied uh, career over time, studying different aspects of, of social movements and social change. My other advisor was in School of uh, Journalism and Mass Communication. His name was Lou Friedman. Uh, and I wanted to have them both as co-advisors because I came to graduate school with a background in both media studies and in social movements. Uh, and so they were a natural sure. home for me coming out of uh, my undergraduate. Over time, as a graduate student, I sort of evolved away from these interests to some extent. So I, my dissertation, my research was not really about social movements, nor was it really about the media. But as a testament to the graduate program there, um, they worked with me, even though my path took me yeah. kind of somewhere farther afield in the realm of expertise. And... Uh, one of the hallmarks of the Wisconsin sociology education was that willingness and ability of those professors to set their own personal expertise and biases aside and help the student work, you know, yeah. through whatever problem or whatever interest they have. Okay. And what was while you were in graduate school? What was the primary focus on this path that you were interested in? There was no focus. Oh. <laughs> Uh, over over time, over time, I moved away from social movements towards political sociology more generally, okay. which includes things like um, understanding the government and the state, uh, and thinking through questions of civic engagement. Yep. Uh, and then my interest in media sort of evolved more into culture more broadly, okay. and um, so my interests. Rather than getting more narrow, yeah. I think actually broadened and got bigger, which is not how it's supposed to work. Yeah, it's supposed they, to go the other way. If I were your advisor, I would have discouraged that, but good for them. That's right. To, uh, well, it's a testament to 
to them, but it's also a statement about sociology as a discipline. Sure. You can study anything sociologically. Right. You know, there are phenomenal right. studies of pigeons right. by sociologists, yep. where the focus is the relationship between humans and the animals, right? right? Um, there's not much you could think of that you couldn't study from a sociological perspective, where the focus is how do humans, you know, right. make sense of this right. uh, and and make this thing a social reality right. or a cultural reality. Wacky humans doing wacky things. Wacky humans doing wacky things yeah. that there's no necessary natural basis for, but just evolves out of the course of you know, human social interaction. So it's fun. It's yeah. a fun discipline. And, that, and you know, that's why I chose sociology to begin with. Right. The first sociology class I took as a college student was um, in urban sociology. And that year, I went to the Bahamas for spring break. Uh, and we were sort of doing Bahamas on the budget. So we didn't stay at the fancy resort yeah. hotels. We ended up staying at this um, apartment in the mainland, you know, sort of off the beaten tourist right. And we got this, we got a view, or I got a view, of the way that Nassau, the city where we were, was laid out in such a way to create this divide between the Bahamas that the tourists see sure. and the Bahamas that everyone who lives there sees. Right. And the experience of doing that made me go, there's sociology everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. This is amazing. I can use this, this way of thinking about the world and, and apply it to whatever I was interested in. And that was the thing. I, that I don't think that, that your spring break experience, I don't think I ever saw that on MTV. No, it was definitely, <laughs> it was definitely not on MTV. I don't think that was the typical MTV spring break that I remember watching as a kid. In the Bahamas, <laughs> we were taking public transportation. Yeah. We were going to the local grocery stores. Right. Uh, the kids, when they would get out of school, um, instead of, you know, there were, I don't think there were school buses. If there were, at least some of the kids rode public transportation, yeah. too. So just by virtue of the fact that we were staying in a place that was off the beaten path, we got to see how the locals lived. Yeah. And there were no other tourists there right. with us. Right. Um, and so it was a very, it was more authentic yeah. than you would see in any. <laughs> or you know, when people say they're going to Acapulco or something like yeah. that, you're not seeing the Acapulco that the people who live there. Right. You are. Yeah. You are seeing what they want people to see. Yeah. So I wanted to transition a little bit to the book, but what was it about the topic of gay marriage? Um, or I imagine you you started this research. Prior to the legalization of gay marriage, that yeah. that's correct. So, what was it about this topic that you found interesting, or that led you down this path? Uh, it was kind of a chance encounter that that led me to study same-sex marriage. Uh, when I was a, a graduate student um, in 2006, Wisconsin had a constitutional amendment on the ballot. So a referendum that would have defined marriage as between one man and one woman mm. in Wisconsin. Okay. Thus making it so that even if a right. uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court had ruled that same-sex marriage uh, should be legalized, mm. it was in the Constitution, and so uh, the, the court would have had no, um, no grounds for, for 
legalizing it. So in 2006, this was the big issue on the ballot. Um, passing the referendum would have banned same-sex marriage for the foreseeable future. And I was a teaching assistant for uh, a course called Contemporary American Society. And the week uh, running up to the election, I used my time to talk about the issues that were on the ballot. Right. So including the referendum, but also you know the importance of voting and, right. and all that other stuff. This was Scott Walker. No. Governor Doyle, Jim Doyle was re-elected. Okay. Okay. Um, it was actually a blue wave. Okay. Um, in the sense that uh, Jim Doyle was re-elected, the Wisconsin Democrats took over, I believe, both the Assembly and the Senate. Okay. Uh, so it ushered in two years of single-party control of Wisconsin citizens. Um, and that fact is important for what I'm about to say. I noticed that in my class, even my conservative students, for the life of them, could not understand why people would be against gay marriage. It's common to have a sort of a one-sided classroom dynamic where everybody isn't speaking in favor of gay marriage, right. uh, and no one is speaking against it. You know, and as an instructor, you figure out how to deal with that, and, and, sure. and that's fine. But that same week, the there was a conservative activist newspaper on campus. Not like an ordinary student newspaper. This was funded by a right-wing think tank in sure. Milwaukee. Um, and the people, the students who wrote this newspaper generally took the Republican Party line. Or when they didn't, they advocated more conservative principles. Um, except on gay marriage. And they urged, in an editorial, they urged their readers to vote against the referendum. In other words, to vote for same-sex marriage. And so those two events kind right. of made me go, huh, yeah. is this such a generational shift that even the most conservative activists are pro-gay marriage? Mm -hmm. And then similarly, um, in this Democratic wave election, where Democrats took control of the entirety of state government, the same-sex marriage ban won with about 60% of the vote, maybe more. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head. But it wasn't so, 50, 50 59, was not. 51. No. So, you know, a good 10% of Wisconsinites right. voted for Democrats and against same-sex marriage. And so not only do we see these young conservative activists being pro-gay marriage, but even right. these older liberals opposing yeah. gay marriage. And, and so that made me wonder uh, if there was a generational shift. And, and if so, what was causing it? Mm -hmm. At the time... We knew that support for same-sex marriage was growing. Mm -hmm. And we knew that young people were more likely to support it right. than older people. And when you see that pattern in, in the public opinion data, that's a pretty good sign that there could be a generational shift happening. Yep. And at the time, that's what everybody thought. Yeah. But nobody knew why. And so I wanted to try to figure out why there was this generational shift. In other words, what... What is it exactly that would cause young people to differ from their elders on this issue? Right. Even when you might agree with someone uh, on political or religious grounds. So I was interested in, in, in looking at uh, or being able to compare parents and children who were otherwise ideologically pretty similar right. to one another, but who nonetheless disagreed with each other about this issue. 
and so that's what I did. I went to Northern Illinois. Uh, and why? Yeah, I mean, you know, most of your interviews are taken from Northern Illinois. Yep. Far enough away. What was it that was the decision that made you go to Northern Illinois? Part of it was convenience. Mm-hmm. It was close to Madison. It was also in a state where the popular where uh, same sex marriage hadn't been banned in the Constitution yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the kind of thing that happened in Massachusetts, which was the first state that legalized same sex marriage, right. where the state supreme court overturned the gay marriage ban as being unconstitutional, yep. that could have happened there. And then uh, the third reason for me going there is that um, the Northern Illinois region has it's sort of like a cross-section of American society in terms of you know, race, mm-hmm. religion, rural to urban uh, lifestyles, right. but within a confined cultural context. And I wanted to get that sort of like a, a, a sort of a flavor mm-hmm. of how Americans in one part of a country across all these different demographic characteristics talked about religion. Mm-hmm. So I recruited students, college students, from two colleges. One was Northern Illinois University, uh, which is in DeKalb. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was a community college in Rockford okay. called uh, Rock Valley College. Okay. Those two colleges draw their students pretty much exclusively from that Northern Illinois region, uh, which includes Chicago, the suburbs, right. the mid-sized city of Rockford, and then right. all these little small farm towns yeah. everywhere. And when I... Completed an interview with a student. I asked for permission to contact one of their parents. And overall, I conducted 97 interviews with these college students. And was this this is why you were a graduate student? Yes. And was it funded out of where was the funding for that? Or did you just were you just like I was uh, funded from the National Science Foundation? Okay. Okay. A very small, very small research grant that allowed. That allowed me to buy a laptop okay. and some audio recording equipment okay. and to pay my informants for their time. Okay. Um, and that was pretty much it. Okay. So that was, it wasn't uh, part of a larger research program that was going on. That it was, no. It was Peter jumping in the car and driving down to Northern Illinois. That's exactly what it was. Okay. And it was not much more than that. <laughs> kind of like this podcast. <laughs> If I haven't already said it, the name of the book is The Gay Marriage Generation, How the LGBTQ Movement Transformed American Culture. As I was reading this, well, first, uh, one of the parts that I liked the most about it was the history of the LGBTQ movement, which I, and, and hopefully at this point, this type of history is working its way into more temporary high school and even uh, standard college history, but the uh, nuanced gay, mu- gay movement in the United States was kind of leaps and starts in a way, and some things are okay in some places, and some places they're not, I guess, and it's still the case, but <clears throat> when you were working on the history part of that, what was it that you were trying to get across to kind of build that premise for the rest of the book? The, the, the one thing that I struggled with the most in going back into the history of the lesbian and gay movement was to try to figure out how the actions of the movement and then later of the counter-movement, you know, the religious right or the new right, how was that affecting non, 
political Americans, you know, what we would call ordinary Americans who are not involved in the movements. They're not, uh, you know, they're just living their lives. Exactly. Um, I wanted to really figure out how what these political activists were doing was affecting the way that ordinary people might think. Because part of the idea of a generation is that two different groups of people separated by age, have this different life experience and different worldview that goes with it. So if it was the case, which I thought it was, that there was a generational shift going on, with the, then that would mean that young people would have to understand or think about the question of gay marriage differently than their parents did. Right. And so if I was going to make this case, this argument that there really was a generational change, I had to be able to pinpoint it right. historically. Yeah. The years X to Y, sure. this thing happened. When Seinfeld said. When, exactly. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. That meant something. So, um, so my study of the history of the lesbian gay movement was a history that was focused on trying to understand how homosexuality was represented in popular culture in the news media, and in politics, which is where we get our broader sense of the world. I assumed that, you know, during the 1970s and 80s in particular, very few people would get their ideas about homosexuality from personal contact. Back at that time, very few lesbians and gays felt comfortable enough to be out about their sexuality. And so the ideas that they were getting about what homosexuality meant or what the idea of gay marriage would mean would come from celebrities and it would come from, uh, you know, Walter Cronkite. Right. Or locker room jokes. Or locker room jokes, exactly. And uh, so I had to try to tease out what was the lesbian and gay movement saying versus what was everybody else hearing. And when people talk about gay liberation Mm -hmm. or the lesbian and gay movement, the thing that most people think of You know, people have heard of anything. They've heard of the Stonewall Rebellion in 1969, uh, where in response to an ordinary run-of-the-mill police raid that was meant to crack down on homosexual activity, um, the gay and lesbian patrons at the bar rebelled and initiated two two days and nights of rioting. That was a watershed moment in that it gave birth to the gay liberation movement where people started saying, I can't be in the closet anymore. Uh, We have to be out. Gay pride parades that are celebrated every June started then to commemorate that moment. So that was the moment in lesbian and gay history Mm -hmm. in the United States. But that was not the watershed moment for gay marriage because ordinary Americans for the next two decades still rejected the claims of lesbians and gays that their identity was legitimate. So lesbians and gays were saying, you know, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. That was actually much later that they said that. Uh, But but, um, ordinary Americans, for the most part, chose to define sexuality as a deviant behavior. You might think that what you're doing is fine, but we don't. Uh, And so I had to go searching for the time period, the moment in history when ordinary people started to change their minds. You know, it wasn't when gay and lesbian activists changed their mind. That wasn't the important thing for me. What I wanted to know was when did, like, the ordinary people in Peoria, Illinois start changing their mind? 
I would say for, and I'm probably five, what are you, 30? 38. Okay, I'm, so I'm 45. So, you know, a few years older than you, but in my lifetime, this has probably been the, one of the most rapid as well as most significant social changes that has occurred. Is, um, when I was in, say, high school in the 80s or, or early 90s, it was a, there's us, and then there's this other group, but they're not like us. Yes. And then I go to college uh, in the 90s, and it's, it was, it was, we have our group, we have their group. There, there's not a better, there's not a worse, yeah. but we have, there's still a separate group. Where I feel like now, uh, and then moving into the 2000s, it, if, if someone is homosexual, it, do, it no longer needs to be their key defining attribute in, in their personality. Where, whether when I was in college or even before that, it was, if they were an openly gay person, it would have been, from the outside looking in, a key defining attribute. Where I feel like we've gotten to a point, uh, m- most of the society, where, okay, if you want that to be your key defining attribute, great, but it no longer, it, it doesn't have to be. It's just another thing, like haircut, well, you know, like an, another attribute that you have that you can define in whatever uh, way you like. So that's exactly right. There's a sociologist named Amin Ghaziani who terms this moment the post-gay moment. Yeah. In the sense that we're over it. Uh, and we have been over it for at least a decade now, maybe more. Um, sexuality doesn't define you the way that you used to. And this is in some ways ironic because the, the research that I did ultimately sh- pointed to a cultural change in the way that we define sexuality as being the root cause of, of the generational shift towards In other words, it was precisely when we defined sexuality as being part of your identity that people started thinking differently about sexuality and about general. You know, I'll back up a little bit. Prior to the late 1990s, Americans understood sexuality to be behavioral. It was what you did. And the U.S. Supreme Court back in 1996, in the case of Bowers versus Hardwick, ruled that you can be prosecuted, criminally prosecuted, for having sex the wrong way in the privacy of your own home. Right? Uh, so, so sexuality was what you did. Uh, by 1993, this alternative way of defining and understanding sexuality had taken root, and especially among young people and amongst liberals, that sexuality wasn't what you do, it's who you are. So my sexual identity uh, is just part of who I am. Your sexuality is just part of who you are, and it doesn't really matter what we do with it. It's just part of us. And in that way, it's very similar to race or gender or something like that. And it doesn't define you, but it is sort of thought to be an immutable characteristic. It's not something you choose. It's not something that you can really change, per se. It's just part of who you are. Uh, And young people who came of age thinking about sexuality in terms of identity rather than in terms of behavior, they were more likely to support gay marriage while the older people were more likely to approach. I think you maybe just summed up your book there. In I kind of did. One sentence. <laughs> so let's, let's jump back into that. Uh, going into your research, 
another thing I really appreciate about the book is you you did a, an excellent job of it, it appears in your interviews of not showing your cards. You did, <laughs> Thank you, you. which is I guess is every every scientist every scientist uh, goal when they're doing research is to not interfere with the the subjects being sub studied. But <clears throat> you did have obviously you had preconceptions and you had biases walking in, but what were some of the things that you found either most interesting or, or most surprising throughout the course of these interviews? I think because of my own personal feelings and my, my own personal opinions, which you're right, we all have, I think because of that, I was most interested in talking to um, the religious conservatives, the people who were solidly opposed the gay marriage, and then the younger religious conservatives, who some of them were solidly opposed to gay marriage, but others were not. Yeah, um, and who were wrestling with this tension yeah. in their worldview between what the Bible says right. versus what they just kind of understand right. to be what true. What makes sense to them as a person, right? Yeah, I think it was it a, a Nick or something that you referenced in the book with yep. one of your interviews, uh, who basically was saying. Yeah, it's wrong. I don't know if I agree that it's wrong, <laughs> but I guess the Bible says it's wrong, so it's wrong. But I don't, I don't know if that's what I would think if I could set up the rules. Yeah. Like he just throughout that interview, it sounded like you could just see the sh the, the angel on one side and the devil on the other. <laughs> taking a religious analogy. Yeah, which is which? But, I'm not sure. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I guess it, each person has to define that for themselves. That's right. But, that's right. Uh, <laughs> but he was just. He was struggling yes. to come to terms with, and even, you know, even if you were to look at it from a, a Christian standpoint or a biblical standpoint, there's the love your neighbor aspect along with the literal translation of a Bible. And so you could, you could struggle and see the contradictions within the Bible itself, even if you wanted to keep society and culture out of it at that point. That's right. My my the, my quest for the Holy Grail in this book was for a satisfactory explanation of of what wasn't being said, right? You know what what were people not saying when they were expressing their opinions one way or the other? Yeah. And it took me years to really finally unravel what wasn't being said, right? Um, and and I. Nick was so important as an interviewer for me because he was the person who said all the things that nobody else said. Mm -hmm. You know, he would offer his opinion. Well, same-sex marriage is wrong. Right. But then he would also say all the stuff <laughs> that was in the background, the yeah. background processing that normally nobody else said. He would yeah. say it. And because there was a difference between the background processing going on in his mind and the stuff that he knew he had to say because his ideology told him to say that, that was the, that was the key for me. It right. helped me understand that there were two levels of the debate here. The surface level of the debate over gay marriage was this explicit culture wars. What side am I on? Exactly. Uh -huh. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Yeah. No, it's not. Marriage is for anybody. Right. Homosexuality is wrong. Right. No, it's not. It's right. just fine. You know, that explicit level of the disagreement was always there, and that was the language that the debate was carried out on. Right. But the generational difference was not at that level. Right. It was at the hidden level. Right. 
uh, a hidden level of understandings of things that you just take for granted because it's so obvious to you that you don't even realize that someone else could feel or understand something different. Uh, and so that's where all the action was yeah. for me. Yeah. The idea that sexuality is either something you do or something that you are, that's not something that people argue about. Right. That's just part of your rudimental image right. you have about right. sexuality. Uh, and that was the big generational yeah. gap. It's yeah. not even that the generations disagreed with each other. It's right. that they couldn't understand each other. <laughs> they were talking about two different things. Right, but even then, with some of, say, the older generation, you could, I don't remember any of the particular names, but there were people who took a libertarian bent that was like, whatever, you know, like, it was still a them to them, but it was like, live your life. That's uh, right. So that's where that kind of nuance get in, got into people's opinions in some of the interviews you had, I thought. was uh, so interesting that it wasn't as clean as, you know, on this day, anybody born before this, like, is in favor, and anybody born, or anybody born after this is in favor, anybody born before is against, right? But it... Uh, there was... The idea of a person's sexuality is their own business. Uh, you know, I don't care. This doesn't affect right. me. What they do in their own home. What they do in their own lives. You yeah. know, I just don't want to see it in public. Right. Um, that discourse was really interesting because it tended to be used or expressed by people who implicitly imagined sexuality, homosexuality wrong or gross, yeah. or icky. Yeah. And they wouldn't say it was wrong. They right. wouldn't say it was immoral. They would say, well, that's not my place to judge. But you could just kind of tell yeah. that they were not okay with it. But these people generally identify themselves as politically liberal, mm -hmm. or they were libertarian in the mm -hmm. sense that they thought, yeah, for the most part, should everybody should have equal rights. Right. And so they could not bring themselves to say, I'm against gay marriage because then that would impose an inequality. Right. Right. And so older liberals oftentimes said, well, that's none of my business because they didn't want to, you know, admit, I think, right. that there was this contradiction in their world. Do you think that that type of person is necessary for this trans transition to take place? So obviously they grew up they grew up most of their lives at a time when homosexuals were in the closet. Yes, there was homosexuality out there. Everybody agreed it was wrong. And now it's come to a later point in their life where they see that see the times are changing, but at the same time still have this historical baggage. Uh, but so do you think that that type of person, whether it's this movement or any other, is a key player, perhaps, or could, you know, for this movement to achieve the status that it did and finally have that defining, okay, gay marriage is legal, is that type of person or that group a necessary piece of that puzzle? I have wondered that a lot, yeah. actually, because when I was talking to people and interviewing people, I had this intuitive feeling that most people held the key to understanding what the change was. Um, just like people like Nick, 
the young conservative evangelicals who agreed that homosexuality was a sin because the Bible said so, but also agreed that, well, I'm a sinner too, and so it doesn't make any sense to single out one group of people for their sins and, right. and not another. Those two groups seemed like mm. carriers yeah. of this chain. Yeah. And I often imagined myself reading their interviews, listening to their interviews, as like, you know, the geeky mathematical term would be a vector. Mm-hmm. You know, they were on right. their way somewhere. Right. Where they were right now is not where they would be 10 years from now. Right. Like, they seemed like they were part of this transitional yeah. moment. And I, I was never able to, you know, satisfactorily conclude to my own mind that that was the case. But it sure did feel that. So, yeah, so looking at it, the older generation uh, would not oppose the adoption of uh, legalization of gay marriage, while the younger conservative generation would not try to repeal gay le- or the gay marriage legislation once it's in place, almost. Yeah. Kind of a, we're going to hold it in the middle. <laughs> I once saw a very unique Result from the Des Moines Register. This was probably around 2011 or 2012 or so. Usually, when pollsters ask people opinions about given issue, they'll say, you know, do you support or do you oppose it? Right. You know, yes or no. Or, you know, if you're lucky, it's do you strongly oppose it or just oppose it? Yeah, or strongly, yeah. you know. Um, this Des Moines Register poll asked people about uh, same sex marriage in Iowa. And they said, do you support it, oppose it, or do you just not care? (laughs) They offered, I don't care, as a choice. (laughs) And that's very unusual for pollsters to do that. Right, or it would be not applicable. In most polls, it would be part of the, you know, I vote, you know, the person didn't answer the question. You you just don't either agree or disagree. Yeah, you don't even report what the number is. Yeah. About one third. Of all people polled, said, I don't care. That would be a wonderful poll to see if they were to do it every five years. I agree. Period. I agree. Uh, because there was a significant number of people who were caught in the middle. For the most part, during the culture war, when people were fighting out this issue, all you would get was the supporters versus right. the opponents. And it's these people in the middle who were left out. Yeah. And I always thought, in my book, it's those people in the middle right. who were the most important, right. who had the most uh, clues to give me about what change was taking place and who the change was happening for and who the change wasn't happening yeah. for. And I think what, through maybe the 2005 uh, until it was enacted, the politicians are a good kind of measure of tiptoeing around this issue. Yes. Because they're governing via what is going to get them either reelected or what their constituents are saying. So it's this middle group that is shifting as a mass down the road that I think... That's right. During, uh, during the 2008 election of Obama versus McCain, that was, the, that was the year when I was doing my interviews here for this book. Um, both party candidates... Uh, and both presidential and vice presidential. So this is Obama, Biden, yep. and McCain and Sarah Palin. Yep. All four of them 
were against same-sex marriage, but in favor of civil union. That was that middle ground at the time. You can be, you can express your conservative opposition to same-sex marriage, right. but you can be pro-equality right. by saying that you're in favor of civil union. Yeah. And so, you know, nowadays we we think about you know the partisan divide. Yeah. Uh, and can you imagine Trump and Clinton agreeing on anything? Well, back in 2008, that was that was how important that that middle ground was. Right. And what is remarkable is it's 10 years. If a politician were going to, just one of the things that really speaks to once it was legalized, just everybody was like, okay, we're done. We're done with this. We're, we're moving on. Because now if you were to say, you know what, I am opposed to gay marriage and I am pro-civil unions, you would have the whole world coming down. Like you would be the worst bigot that you can imagine or just. Ten years ago, that was that was the party line. That was the safe, uh, safe uh, option. It's very telling that even after gay marriage was legalized in all fifty states mm-hmm. in twenty fifteen, public opinion has continued its same trajectory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, more and more Americans continue to support it, mm-hmm. uh, and it hasn't slowed down at all. I do think at some point we will hit a. T- a, a plateau mm-hmm. where there will be some number of, uh, of religious conservatives in the United States who will not oppose, who, or I'm sorry, who will not uh, support same-sex marriage right. no matter what. But we haven't hit that plateau yet. Right. Um, so with every passing year, yeah. this generational change continues to churn out new supporters of same-sex marriage. And uh, so even though the U.S. Supreme Court is now moving in a more conservative direction, yes, they could overturn same-sex marriage legally nationwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unlikely for anyone to actually lose the right, right. to marriage right. because of this, because of how politically it has become a non-issue. So we're just, I'm going to out you here. We're two married uh, yeah. guys here. Married to the opposite sex, talk, talking about this. Yeah. Uh, what has been in the uh, last several years the response in the gay community to the legalization of gay marriage? That, or have you you're like oh, that, was, that was last year's topic? Is that- no, <laughs> no. Um, I actually just read a great book on this subject um, by Nathaniel Frank, uh, and for some reason the, the actual title of the book is escaping me right now, but. Uh, he kind of wrote the definitive political and legal history of gay marriage okay. in the United States. Um, and the, the, his basic argument in the book is that uh, during the 1980s, 1990s, and even the early 2000s, gay marriage was not an issue that very many people in the LGBT movement really cared about that much. Okay. I mean, historically, that movement has focused on you know, yeah. securing civil non-discrimination, yeah. basic civil rights. The idea of same-sex marriage was very much a, a marginal issue for uh-huh. most for most people. That all changed, I think, in 2003 when Massachusetts became the first state uh, to legalize same-sex marriage. Uh, and the ways that lesbians and gays saw the value of that cultural recognition and just what it would mean 
to them to say that um, our love is equal to your right. love. And we're on the same legal footing as somebody who is married. That's right. Uh, you know, and society says that our relationships have the same value. Right. And, you know, it wasn't really even about the benefits. It wasn't really even about the tax benefits. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, it was yeah. a it was a moral judgment on the on the value sure. of your relationship. The way that Frank characterizes it is that once lesbians and gays saw what marriage means to them in, in that symbolic way, that then everybody jumped on. Um, there are still, of course, a lot of people in the LGBTQ community who aren't interested in marriage, mm-hmm. just like there's lots of people in the straight community right. who aren't interested in marriage. Right. Uh, and many of us, in, in, you know, regardless of sexual orientation, um, believe that marriage shouldn't be somehow better than someone else who, whose relationship is not a marriage. I do think it's fair to say that a marriage has been equalized. And I think lesbians and gays now feel very similarly to a lot of straight couples about what marriage is to them. I mean, I do know that, that you know, the cultural recognition is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think both sides agreed on that. Mm-hmm. You know, for opponents of same-sex marriage, they didn't care about the tax benefits. Right. That was not something that they cared about. Right. They cared about what it would mean culturally if now a, a homosexual relationship was treated as equal to their own heterosexual relationship. That was the thing they worried about. Yeah. I do think it's the case that regardless of the legal and financial implications, the big impact of legalizing same-sex marriage is going to ultimately be what that means for how our society thinks about sexuality. Is heterosexuality still superior to homosexuality? Or are they perfect moral equivalents? Um, The supporters say, this is great, perfect moral equivalents. The fact that you and I are are straight married men, that that, that means nothing compared to to a same-sex married couple. You know, we're not better than they are. And that is exactly the problem, or exactly the issue that opponents think is a problem. Mm. So it's the cultural means of of sexuality. That's the real issue. We still see, uh, I guess, how far far have we come in terms of independent of marriage itself, but gay acceptance within the community at large? I think you said it's slowly trending up. Uh, to more greater acceptance, but yeah. Eau Claire, Wisconsin, we're as much rural as we are urban. Or so I just I'm curious to if if you were a gay man or a lesbian woman in this community today versus ten years ago, yeah. is your life better? Is yeah. is it? Uh, do you feel like you can be if you choose? To express your sexuality to people. I don't want to speak for anyone, Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that you could imagine yes or no answer. Um, I guess one thing I will say, I'll say two things. One is 
that things are not better in the sense that uh, the situation remains unchanged with respect to discrimination against lesbians and LGBTQ. Um, there are there are not significantly greater non-discrimination protections now than there were. You're talking about from a legal standpoint. From a legal standpoint, right. you know, the situation now in many states is that you can get married on Sunday and fired on Monday mm. because you chose to marry the wrong person, right? So in terms of in terms of uh, the law, we're not any better off uh, in terms of uh, non-discrimination issues. Uh, however, I will tell you that um, as a professor, students out themselves in my classes all the time now. Um, when I cannot imagine, and I cannot think of very many students doing that um, prior, you know, 10, you know, 15 years ago, 10, 15 yeah. years ago, um, it was much harder to, uh, to come out. Right. Um, whereas now, um, students here at UW Eau Claire really don't think much of outing themselves in a lecture hall full of 120 students. Like right. that's not a big deal to many right. of them. So it certainly seems that especially for young people, Sexuality isn't as big a deal, yeah. and it's and, and people are more accepting of, of people with different sexual identities than was true, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But I don't think that I could say that things are necessarily any better sure. uh, in terms of, you know, actual security you know, and safety, even. So thinking about people outing themselves in their class, I guess, say, 15 years ago, or when we were going to college... That were to happen, there would be a whether even if everybody's supportive, it'd be a gasp. Has it gotten to the point where people are like, eh? Yes. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, yes. can we finish with the lecture here, buddy? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it, is, it is a non-issue. Okay. In many, in, in, at least in the classes right. that I teach, which is not a typical class, I sure. would grant you. But, but um, I think I think one of the areas where I think is most, I don't know, that makes me feel the happiest is that. Um, in high schools, which is just a weird, awkward, crazy time for everybody, the open and open and the acceptance of uh, openly gay children or children at that point in high school uh, is one of the best and biggest differences from when I was. In. You can have you can have an LBGTQ club in a high school, and even if everybody's not on board with your sexuality. Everybody knows that that's who you are, and that's it. Like, that's the end of the story. So I think from a – I mean, we have so many social issues to worry about, so that hopefully now we have so many kids dealing with psychological and emotional issues and uh, struggles, and I think that that is one of the best things that hopefully is worried about less in those adolescent years or kids who are still not sure or still working through it, they can work through it publicly with the support of friends and family where those weren't options yeah. uh, years ago. Yeah. I think the legalization of gay marriage is a story to celebrate. Mm -hmm. And I know that you know many of my uh, conservative uh, interviewees wouldn't think that. Yeah. And I know that a good, you know, 30% of the population doesn't think that. But 
the dynamics that you're talking about where children don't have to grow up feeling horrible about themselves because of how they feel inside. Yeah. Taking up crap on kids nowadays. Yeah, I mean, this is this is unquestionably a good thing. Yeah. I think in terms of the moral standard of allowing human beings to find love mm-hmm. and happiness and acceptance in the world. At the end of the day, if homosexuality is a sin or not, is something that you can't prove or disprove. It's an article of faith, and it's an article of faith for opponents, just as it's an article of faith for supporters, right? I mean, it's just one of those things that that people are going to either you know agree on or disagree on, right? Because it's not something that you can run a scientific test on to determine, right? You, right? Right. But if the moral standard is, does our society help every child? be their best version of themselves and achieve their fullest potential, then the legalization of gay marriage is going to be one little incremental step towards that goal. I think kids growing up today uh, um, and kids in high school who uh, are transgender or lesbian or gay or bisexual or queer or whoever, however they identify, um, if they can be more supported and less stigmatized and more encouraged to be the best version of themselves, or even to then I think we're a better yeah, society. Yeah, to figure yourself out. To figure yourself out. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and, and it takes a long time to figure yourself out. <laughs> Still working. We're exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think we could go on for another two or three hours, but this is, seems like a really good place to wrap it up. Yeah, I, uh, I want Peter. I want to thank you once again. The name of the book is "The Gay Marriage Generation: How uh, the LBGT." L- Gosh, they should come to make a, that. Make it make a it tough a, acronym. Make it into a word, will ya? <laughs> the LGBTQ movement transformed American culture. Peter, thank you for your time, and see you on the ultimate field. Ugh. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Dialogue. Well, it's no surprise you see that you've heard.